Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumors. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. For those of us who loved college basketball during the 1990s, there are so many iconic figures who still dance around in our memories. That's why I really, really wanted Chris Corciani on the podcast, a legendary player for NC State from 1987 to 1991 when he played for a legendary coach in Jim Valvano and teamed with Rodney Monroe to form a legendary backcourt affectionately known as Fire and Ice. When Corciani, a.k.a. Fire, finished his Wolfpack career, he was the NCAA all-time leader in assists, went on to play for three NBA teams before taking his talents overseas. And now, Chris Corciani is a guest on the Great Point Podcast. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. Glad glad to spend some time with you. For sure, for sure. There's, there's so much to get to, Chris. The first thing I usually like to, to ask guests is – what is your earliest basketball memory? Well, my father was a high school coach in Miami, Florida. So I started going to his practices, um, you know, every weekend, teacher work days, um, you know, as early as three or four years old. So I was around basketball at a very, very young age. Um, and, I, and I just grew up uh, being the son of a, a coach and you know, if I wasn't playing, I was watching it. Um, he was always scouting different teams. So I went to more high school basketball games in Miami uh, as a spectator, um, you, you know, than probably anyone. What types of things did he teach you about the game that maybe you didn't learn from other people as as you got older? You know, I think at, at that age, you know, just being around and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny to think this, but when I was five or six years old, um, you know, I was running drills, you know, the, the, a lot of the drills that a high school team would do, a three-man weave or a three-on-two, two-on-one fast break drill. I would do all those drills. And then as I got older, um, you know, he would incorporate me in the scrimmages and he'd have me break in the press. And uh, it was almost <laughs> as though he was formulating his practices to, to really help me uh, and the team as well. So you have this incubator almost for uh, learning the game of basketball at, at a young age. And then you take that with you as you, as you get into high school. Tell me about the start of your, of your high school basketball career. I'll tell you what, my dad did something that, uh, you know, it happens a lot more frequently now than it did back, back in the eighties. But, uh, and growing up in Miami, in junior high school, it was 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. So high school back then didn't start until 10th grade for the public schools. And in the junior high school ranks, they only played one day. It was, it was one day of basketball, and, and you'd either win the city championship or not in, in middle school. And uh, Ricky Blanton, who played at LSU, um, was a few years older. And in my 7th grade year, we won the city championship my eighth grade year uh, as well. But when I was set to go in, into the ninth grade, my father sent me to a private school and held me back. And so I actually played eighth and ninth grade for a private school uh, on the high school team. So I was able to get 30, you know, six games uh, in instead of just the one day. And I actually played for the, the uh, great uh, North Carolina star, Lenny Rosenbluth, who won a, championship with the Tar Heels back in 1957. So uh, Coach Rosenbluth was my coach in eighth and ninth grade. And then when I got to uh, 10th grade, I transferred to my father's school. So how much do you think that gave you an advantage over over your peers, not just playing wise, but also in terms of just pure confidence? Uh, there, was, there, there was the biggest one thing that really kind of changed my my basketball career was, you know, being able to to uh, get an extra year, and, and not only athletically, but socially, academically, 
um, it, it gave me a big boost. And, uh, you know, again, instead of going into ninth grade, I repeated eighth. And I also was able to play against bigger and stronger players because I was playing against, you know, juniors and seniors on, on the high school level. You ended up having a phenomenal high school career there in in Miami, and you broke the Florida Prep scoring record, which Teddy Dupay ended up breaking your your record, from what I understand. I talked to Seth Greenberg before this podcast, and he told me that he watched every single one of your high school games your your junior year. What do you recall about about Seth's recruitment? And then we'll take it a little further and talk about the the grander recruitment. Well, I tell you, Coach Greenberg was great. You know, he was uh, at the University of Miami, and uh, he didn't miss a game. He recruited me extremely hard, and I, I formed a real special bond with him. Um, back back in the '80s, you know, high school basketball in Miami was a big deal. You had a number of great players, number of great teams, and um, you know, games were just you know there were sellouts, and it was a it was really a big deal. Um, that has changed over the years. Um, typically. You, know, you think of Miami more as a a football uh, state, but um, yeah. So so Greenberg, he was just wonderful, great recruiter. Just Miami wasn't in a place they just reinstated their their basketball program, and um, you know I was looking looking to go you know in in a conference that was you know a little bit more uh, upscale than than where Miami was at the time. So he told me that you have a great story about when. Jim Valvano came to recruit you. Can you tell me that story? Yeah, I've got. I tell you, Adam, I got a bunch of good stories. Uh, <laughs> okay, about but you know, it was funny. He, he when Coach Valvano started recruiting me, you know, it was a little different approach. Um, he really was recruiting my father, and uh, all these other coaches would would come in for home visits, and you know, they would would cater to me and. and they wanted to talk to me. When Coach B came in, my mom would make uh, spaghetti and meatballs every time, and they would sit out on the porch and and, and just drink wine. And <laughs> when he would leave, I didn't I didn't feel like like I even had much time with him. So he knew that my father was a a, a huge influence on me and was going to have a a big decision on on where I was going to go. And it, it was a different type of approach. Um, as we got further into the recruitment, there was a time when Coach V came into my living room and he started saying, he said, listen, Chris, I'm going to give you the ball, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to go pick and roll, and he grabbed the, the, the sofa, and he was arranging the sofa a certain way for a double screen, and then he would, would move the, t- the television over, and he'd move the chair, and at the end of his 10, 15-minute uh, rant on, on how the offense was going to be run every piece of furniture was just all over the living room. It was just something that I wish I had on video, but uh, he was just an unbelievable, charismatic uh, recruiter. Did he move it back? No, no, no. He, he wasn't <laughs> going to do that. He wanted to get back to the porch and, and, and have, have some more red wine. And, uh, I so you're left to that. Yeah, I had to put the pieces together. Yeah, I had to, I had to take care of the mess that Coach V made. Oh, that's phenomenal. Uh, so in your mind, was NC State the, the only option as, as the recruiting started to ramp up? No, you know, back back then, and I think it's the case now, you, you were allowed five uh, official visits. And um, being from, from Florida, um, I went to Florida and Florida State. But if you can recall back then, uh, Florida State they were in the Metro and they just weren't at the same level they are now. And in Florida, you know, Florida's program just was, you know, just wasn't, um, you know, just wasn't the top level that I wanted to be at. So I wanted to play in the Atlantic coast conference. So my three final choices were Virginia, uh, Duke and NC state. And I knew I wanted to play in the ACC. Um, and uh, when it came down to everything, I just thought that NC state and, and coach Favano, you know, was going to be the best fit for me. What is your fondest memory from your actual high school playing days? Just winning. We we won the state championship my junior year, and just the feeling of of uh, the accomplishment. I tell you, I, I I'm a little of a, a corny type of guy. When we won that state championship, I would always kind of just where if we were driving 
for, for an AAU practice, I would say, you know, this whole land, you know, we're, we're the we're the best team in high school in this whole state. And it was just a it was a feeling that, um, you know, it wasn't an individual accomplishment. It was something that you did, you know, with your classmates, your friends. And, uh, you know, to me, winning has been been everything. And, uh, you know, that's the only thing, you know, I played basketball because I wanted to win, not because I wanted to go on and play in college, not because I wanted to go on and, and do other things. It was it was winning and losing really meant everything to me. And it's interesting you say that because I had read a quote from from your father that he had said to you that when you came to Hialeah after ninth grade, that you told him you guys would win a state championship. And he said, I've learned to listen a lot more carefully to, to what he says. Do you remember that quote? <laughs> well, I, I do. Yeah, I do. I actually won a state championship in ninth grade. Uh, with Coach Rosenblum uh, at Kendall Acres, and and that feeling was special. Now it wasn't at the the highest level; it was at a one A school. So when I went to the the, the public school, which was a four A school, the, the the biggest classification, um, you know that was a goal. It was something that I really set my mind out to do. Again, as a kid, I would go to Lakeland, Florida, uh, every year. You know, from I was five or six years old to the state championship. So I was in that environment uh, growing up uh, as a spectator. And, and I always said I wanted to be on that stage. I wanted to be in Lakeland. And, um, you know, uh, luckily for me, you know, we put in a lot of hard work and, and we were able to do that uh, my junior year. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. So then, Chris, you end up uh, getting the invite to the 1987 McDonald's game. How much do you remember about getting the phone call and the invitation to be to be a part of that game? Yeah, I remember that was you know that was a big deal you know um, you know having the opportunity to to just be recognized in in an elite group of players was was something very special. Um, you know I enjoyed that whole experience, um, but again that that was more an individual accomplishment and and to me you know winning and competing was was far greater than, than any of those individual type of accomplishments. I, I totally get that. But you also played with some phenomenal guys on, on that team. I mean, Larry Johnson, before he had gone on to, to junior college and obviously eventually UNLV, uh, Mark Makins on that team, uh, John Crotty, Jay Edwards, uh, Brian Shorter. So how about the experience of just being a part of the McDonald's game, the practices, and then, and then the game itself? What do you remember from that time? Well, you know, it was, you know, it's a probably a three or four day um, event. So you have an opportunity to um, get a chance to meet some of the guys that you'd heard about and, and, and had, uh, you know, competed against. So it was a unique experience just being around, uh, those players, and I tell you, the McDonald's uh, All-American game—they do a, a great job of, of really exposing the high school kids to uh, go going to charities and hospitals, and um, you know, all of that was real rewarding. And um, you know, practicing and competing against guys that you would uh, later compete uh, and/or play with—you um, know—at another level was was really special. Um, you know, I can tell you the game itself, you know, I never loved those all-star games. Um, you know, I never, never did extremely well because I, I needed to have the ball and I needed to be in a system. So I kind of mm -hmm. dreaded the games, but it was, uh, you know, the whole experience was, was special. Now at that time, just to get a feel for where your, your head was at, obviously you're a big time player in your home state. You have the state championships. You've you know got all these accolades, a scoring record, everything else. But how much did you think about how you stacked up nationally? Um, you know, I, I think I think things are are much different now than they were back then. You know, you had maybe the Street and Smith report, and then you would rank the the players here and there. Um, you know, I didn't look at it quite quite that way um you know i wanted to compete and kind of gauge my talents against um you know king rice and john crotty and um you know player players of, of that level um and you you know you kind of want to know 
you know, you know, am I at that level? What do I need to, to get better? You know, so from that, it was a good measuring stick to, to say, you know, you know, this is a wonderful accomplishment and, and, you know, these guys do, do this and, you know, it was a good measuring stick. So also in this game is Rodney Monroe. So you both obviously end up, uh, he's from Maryland. You both end up at NC state during the game. Uh, where were you guys both in terms of, in terms of your recruitment? How much did you discuss what was coming up for both of you and your futures? Yeah, I, I I believe we had both um, already committed or signed to NC State, and um, you know we had met at uh, you know a number of other camps, you know at uh, different places, and um, it was it was interesting. Rodney's a very soft-spoken, quiet guy, so we you know had a little small talk, but um, you know not a whole lot of you know we can't wait to get there and and. Uh, the, the reality is, you know, we, we were both a little bit, uh, you know, frightened with one another because Rodney was, you know, he was a guard and, and, you know, you, you don't know if, is he going to be a point guard or is he an off guard? And, uh, you know, so it was a little bit of, of you know, I'm going I'm to keep my, my distance a little, I don't want to be too close with this guy. Well, I know you didn't keep your distance too much when you got to NC state because there's the story um, that Chucky Brown says he, he broke up a fight between you two pretty early on. Can you tell me what happened with, uh, with the day that you and, and Roddy Monroe finally uh, went head to head? <laughs> it's, this is, this is, uh, this is amazing. You know, to think of where we are now as friends, uh, Roddy and I are extremely close. We, we talk all the time, but we probably were on campus for, for, two or three weeks and, and we started playing pickup basketball in the gym. And uh, again, we, we didn't know, you know, we had a lot of guards on the team and um, I didn't know if, you know, where Rodney was going to be. And, and uh, started playing a pickup game and Rodney called, uh, you know, a foul. And I didn't think I fouled him. And next time down the court, um, you know, something else happened. And, uh, you know, he, I go in for a layup and he hard fouls me. And the next thing we know, we're, you know, we're fighting. And it's one of those things where, where, you know, we're, we're swinging and, and punching and we're on the ground and nobody's breaking it up. You know, I love the, I, I love the fight where, where it's like a five second fight where you, you swing and somebody jumps in, but we're, we're, we're knocking one another around. And uh, finally it kind of gets broken up. And three or four plays later, same thing. We're at it. We we end up going three rounds, and and on our our <laughs> third episode, we I mean we're bloodied. I mean we're we're really I've never been in a in a fight quite like this. Uh, so finally, you know we're fighting and nobody's breaking it up. Every everybody's around us, and um, Chucky Brown, who's is the ultimate teammate. He's the greatest team I've ever had. He can't he comes in there to break the fight up. And as he does, he, he gets hit by one of, one of our punches. And, and Chucky <laughs> said, you know, I was okay with you guys fighting, but I had a problem when you were hitting me, I was about ready to beat both of <laughs> you. Up. But uh, it's funny. I, I also recall that night we went up and, and spoke to coach V and he was, he was not happy at all. And he said, you know, what is wrong with you assholes? You know, I brought you guys in here to be together, not to fight one another. You guys are, you know, are going to be the backcourt together. You need to work together. <laughs> and, and it was, it was, uh, it was one of those memories you'll, you'll never forget. How does the relationship then does, I guess, is that the, is that the point that it starts to really start to forge from that point or Adam, was, did you still have Adam, the. Adam, Adam, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't really like one another for a couple of years. I mean, we, we were on the team. We'd go to practice. Everything was good. We were on the court together, um, you know, off the court, you know, we, you know, that, that stayed with us probably for a couple of years. And, um, you know, I think throughout that time, we started to respect one another and, and uh, um, it, it's kind of very unusual where you start out a relationship so bad and, and it ends so good. And, and I really think it was really gaining one another's respect and trust. And, and uh, I think Rodney Monroe is, is, you know, in this area, North Carolina, they, 
he's thought of as such a great scorer and such a great shooter. He's still the all-time NC State leading scorer. But but the one thing that they a lot of people don't understand is how competitive and how tough that guy is. You know, he was smooth as smooth as can be, but he had a fire that was hidden that uh, he didn't show you. But uh, that's what really gained my respect. Wow. It's it's so crazy to hear that because you guys both came in with these, you know, highly acclaimed resumes. And then, you know, you're playing on the team together on a, on a very good team your, your freshman year, a pretty stacked NC State team, and you're having success. And I just I'm just in the midst of reading a season inside in which um, John Feinstein uh, writes where he was bouncing around from from school to school covering Steve Kerr and all, and it's just fascinating he, reading these stories about about you as as just a freshman in in college. It it uh, harkens back to to a different time. What was that that freshman year like for you? Hey, that's that's. I think the freshman year for all kids is very different. You know, one is you're being recruited. Um, they love you, and once you step foot on campus, you know that now they're. Now they're on your ass and they're making you work hard and they're, you know, it's a different type of uh, thing that you've been accustomed to. And um, you, you need to learn how to fit in. I mean, we had a stacked squad my freshman year. It was uh, Rodney and I, Sean Green, who went on to play in the NBA, uh, Vinny Del Negro, who had a great career, Chucky Brown, Brian Howard, Charles Shackelford, um, Avi Les. We, we had, we were a, I mean, one of those teams that really could have played any of 12 guys and, um, you know, trying to fit in. And, and uh, you know, I know the first seven games of the year I was coming off the bench and I had never done that before in my life. And, um, you know, I was miserable. And, um, you know, you, you start saying, gosh, am I going to be able to play here? I knew I could, but am, am I going to get an opportunity? I think the freshman year for all kids is just so difficult because it's not only a new level, but it's just trying to fit in. That's a really interesting thing to me. So here you are, you're all of a sudden for the first time on the bench, which, I mean, you have to go beyond middle school, as you just discussed. Like, you have to go way back, maybe never in your life, that you're that you're sitting. So what's the relationship like, the dynamic of you between the other teammates as well as with, with Coach Valvano? We had, and it's funny to ask that question, Adam, we – we we get together every once in a while as a group or we see one another and, and the one common kind of theme when we think about that team is we you know we had we had fights you know when you've got 12 guys that want to play our practices were wars and um you know but but that was the toughness of that team that team um you know was really good and and you know we didn't win every game but but I tell you we we never got blown out and we always were were in a game um, and it was almost the toughness that, that Coach D instilled in all his teams. Um, he, he wanted you to compete, and he wanted you to fight, and he wanted you to, to, to really want to get playing time. So competition was, was something that, uh, you know, Coach D really wanted. He thrived off of it. He thought that, you know, that made everybody better, and it, it, it really carried over into the real games. I think – What's weird about the 1988 NCAA tournament that you guys end up playing in that year is you guys come in as a, a three seed. Kansas yeah. is a six seed. And it's wild. Kansas ends up winning the national championship. But here's the thing. You guys play Murray State in the first round in the 3-14 matchup, lose by three to, to Murray State. Kansas obviously wins their first round matchup, but only beats Murray State in the second round by three. So – how much did you know about Murray State coming into that into that first round game? Yeah, you know, not much at all. But I'll tell you, that game still pains me today. You know, we we it was one of those teams where you know we just overlooked them. You know, we didn't think that they were going to be capable of beating us, and uh, we went into that game, you know, just not ready, not prepared. Um, you know, it bothers me to this day. Um, now they were a great team, so I don't want to take anything away from them. But we just we weren't focused on that game, and um, you know, again, I I think back on on that game quite a bit uh, because that was a team that that I really felt you know had an opportunity to to do something special. Yeah, it's interesting you say you overlooked them because 
I mean, obviously that's a trait that, that carries on throughout generations in sports, but the time was so different then because you weren't as familiar. I mean, no one was fam- as familiar with the, the mid majors and, you know, the hot programs that, that were playing in smaller conferences. It was only the, the power schools that the people sort of knew about that saw on TV that saw through, you know, social media, people talking about them. So it's interesting that, that you bring that up that you didn't know a whole lot. Do you remember then how much you watched? I mean, obviously you watched it, but Kansas's run, how much of a feeling on the team was that that could have been us? Yeah, yeah, you always have that, you know, when, when you see a team that does succeed, make a deep run, um, you know, but we had our opportunity and we didn't take advantage of it. Uh, I think nowadays, you know, those mid-majors, um, you, you know, they're, they're, they're well-known. I mean, they're, you know, they're capable. They, they've done it back then. You know, there weren't many three seeds getting beat by a 14. It just didn't happen all the time. I think that the game has changed so much now. There's so many great players. They all can't go to an ACC. You know, I think back, yeah. back in the eighties, the mid majors just, they, they just really um, didn't have the same opportunities that they have now. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I get a chance to go to all the NC state games and, you know, they lost to William and Mary this year. And William and Mary was a heck of a team. They had a number of really good players, but I, I remember other than the Murray state game that we lost, you know, if we were playing some, some games in the, in the early part of the season, they, they didn't have the depth. They didn't have the size. Um, you know, they may have had a couple of good players, but nowadays those mid majors, you know, they, they, they really are, are competing at a high level. They're getting transfers in. They're uh, getting guys to stick around four years. Um, you know, now, now they're, they're trouble. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're not sleepers anymore. Right, right. And the other thing is, is you had a team from the mid-major level, if they were any good, um, you know, they still wouldn't get the national, the national recognition. So nowadays you can have a Wichita State that everybody knows is actually a legit team, or even, you know, as you're talking about William and Mary being talented, like that, those teams will, you know, get recognition nationally. Whereas back then it just, it didn't happen. So you guys could walk into a buzzsaw at any time if the team was actually pretty good. Yeah. You mentioned Wichita state. I actually had the opportunity this year uh, to go out to Wichita and see them play Northern Iowa. and, And I was able to spend a day and a half with Greg Marshall and uh, you talk about a big time head coach. This guy is is as good a coach as I've ever seen. You know, I was able to go to his practice, uh, went to dinner with him, uh, went to the pregame meal with his team, uh, watched the video session, uh, did all that, and and they had a 43 game home winning streak. Uh, and I show up as bad luck, and they end up getting beat. <laughs> <laughs> what brought that visit on? A uh, buddy of mine is, is uh, really good friends with uh, Greg. I had never met Greg, but he had talked uh, very highly about him. And um, there was a couple of days where uh, we both uh, could get away. And, and so we went out there and, and it's just, uh, you know, I had never been to Wichita and they, they love their basketball. The atmosphere is, is second to none. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really a fun experience just to, kind of see another program kind of, you know, behind the curtain and exactly, you know, how they do it and, uh, and, and to be able to go to dinner and uh, just talk basketball, just be around it. And, um, you know, he, he's a very, very smart guy. He's always asking questions. He's, you know, when you played, what did you do? What did, you know, what bothered you on a pick and roll? He was just very inquisitive. And, um, <laughs> You know, it was, it was a fun trip. So what did bother you on a pick and roll? What bothered me on a pick and roll? You know, that's one of those things where you just, uh, uh, I didn't really like to get trapped. Um, you know, I, I liked, I'll tell you what I liked. I liked when a, a big, a big slow guy kind of jumped out at me <laughs> and I could slip it or go around him. But, um, you know, that, that was, you know, that's a point guard's dream is, is a coach that, uh, gives them the freedom to go pick and roll. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. Coach Valvano always, you know, when the shot clock was running down, he's, he would always give me the, the green light to, to call out a big guy. But, um, yeah, the pick and roll, you know, as a point guard, that's that's uh, that's what they like. You talk about 
Greg Marshall being one of the best coaches you've ever seen. And, and obviously you played under a guy that uh, is just an absolute legend in, in Jim Valvano. As someone who played for him and you're there every day and, and one of his most memorable players, quite frankly, what's something about Coach Valvano that the rest of us don't know? Um, you know, obviously everyone knows about his, how charismatic he was, and especially with the 83 team. But but I would just say his passion, his passion for life. Um, he was so intelligent about every subject outside of basketball. I mean, he knew about, you know, the wars and poetry. He knew about uh, foreign policy. He was a well-rounded person. You know, he's not one of these basketball coaches that just was basketball. Um, you know, he would you know, symphonies. He was, he was so well-rounded and he had, he had a passion for life. You know, it wasn't just, it wasn't just basketball. You know, a lot of these coaches are so focused. That's all they know. And they're really good at it. Uh, but coach B was not, not that person. He was, um, intelligent beyond his years. I mean, he knew a little bit about everything. And, um, you know, that's something that I've tried to kind of uh, create in my life is is to be well-rounded and be open-minded. Um, you know, he's taught me a lot of things, again, outside of basketball that I've tried to incorporate in my life. Hmm. That's that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Thank you for, for sharing that. When I ask people about your time at NC State and, and preparing for this interview, one of the things that kept popping up was your uniforms. Um <laughs> the unitards specifically uh i'll i'll just let you tell it how how did the unitards come about can you describe them for me take me through the the unitard saga of the nc state team <laughs> i think it's funny i played four years at nc state and and i'm probably more well known for the unitards than anything else i did on the court <laughs> but it's, uh, it's 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 really a big running joke uh you know in the in the uh triangle area here in north carolina but uh, Coach B was on the cutting edge. I mean, he he was one of the first coaches that um, you know did speaking engagements and and had endorsements, uh, and he was uh, one of Nike's first you know coaches that they had, and and he always wanted to do something different. You know, Coach B didn't want to be the same. And I remember him coming in the locker room one day and he says, "Guys, I got something special for you. You know, we're gonna we're gonna wear these uniforms and it's gonna be the." biggest and greatest thing and people are going to be going crazy and and uh we actually practiced in them and, and we were like we were like coach we, we we can't do this you know we can't and at first at first he was going to have us wear all as one piece it was like a wrestler's uniform <laughs> and i remember going to him and say coach you know maybe some of these other guys they they, they may look good in them i don't and this is not going to help me on the court. We, so he allowed us to put shorts over them. But, uh, you know, but that, that really epitomizes Coach V. I mean, he was on the cutting edge. He was always trying things different, whether it was a jump defense or unitards or uh, going on a Johnny Carson show, which was, again, you know, no coaches did that. You know, he was, he was uh, kind of, again, on the cutting edge of everything. And how much did his profile then change your college experience from just being a typical player? I mean, Jim Valvano is this famous coach that everybody, especially at the time that you were there, wants a piece of. So how did that change? How You know, your coach is going on the, the Tonight Show. So yeah. how does that make your life different at that time? Well, you know, I don't know if it made it any different. Um you know, there were just so many different memories. You know, it, it just kind of put the program at another level. I think, you know, when he won the championship in 83, he became a household name. And, and, and then all the other things just kind of brought our program in the spotlight. Um, you, you know, we ended up becoming, you know, he ended up being like a best friend, like a second father to me. And, you know, you hear that quite a bit. You know, people say that. Um, but he was someone I could talk to about anything. Um, we had a really unique uh, relationship. One of the things that I think created that is my um, my junior year, we, we were put on probation and we had all kind of problems, um, you know, with with selling shoes and selling sneakers. And 
it brought it brought us close and and coach v kind of got close with the whole team and um you know that was the thing he would always say you know we have you know we're a family in here we we everything is wonderful we step outside and we're going to be bombarded and and it kind of it really makes me sympathize with with a lot of what's going on over at north carolina um you know all the wolfpack fans are happy that they're um you know under investigation and for me i i know what those kids are going through and it's it's not enjoyable for a student athlete yeah i know the the book personal fouls came out and caused this crazy controversy that you're you're talking about and i had read that during that time you were very seriously considering transferring uh and for and for good reason how close were you to actually leaving nc state you know, I was really disappointed. That was, you know, they ended up firing Coach Valvano uh, my junior year. And I thought it was, you know, I thought it was disgraceful for everything he did for the university. They didn't even let kind of the dust settle. And, um, you know, the NCAA came in and um, I didn't like the way our, our administration handled the firing of Coach Valvano. And uh, I ended up, um, you know, see, you know, searching other opportunities and I talked to a number of different schools. I opened up my recruitment. Um, and, and the funny thing with all that is ended up getting a call from coach V and we, we went to pizza hut. I can remember vividly exactly where it is on Western Boulevard. We sat down and he said, listen, you know, if you're doing this for me, you're making a mistake. He said, you need to stay at NC state. You had three great years. Um, you know, I appreciate your support, but I'm telling you, you need to stay right where you are. You know, I'll be fine. Um, and I, I just said, well, I'm not doing it for you. I just, I, I'm, I'm bitter with the way the whole thing was handled. And, uh, you know, again, there was a, a, a kind of father figure saying, listen, you're not going anywhere. You're, you're staying, staying put. That's, that's really incredible. I can't imagine that happening in a program today. A coach gets fired probably un, unfairly, unjustly, uh, especially when you consider the, the landscape of college basketball then. And I, I can only imagine yeah, just because of how – oh, go ahead. Yeah. If I can interrupt, the, the thing is what, what's really kind of unfortunate with that whole situation is the NCAA came in and a guy named Dave Didion was the head of the uh, NCAA enforcement. He's the one who did the investigation. When he finished the investigation, okay, when it, when it was final – he ended up writing Coach Favano a letter that's that's it's out there. I mean, you can find the letter that was written by him saying that if he had a son, he would want him to play for Coach Favano, that the program was run at such a high level. Now, there was two infractions they found out of all of that mess. One was selling sneakers, which the players did, unbeknownst mm-hmm. to, to Coach Favano. And the other was selling ACC tickets. And again, you were able to give any name on the past list. Now that, that all that has changed now, but two minor violations caused a coach to leave and caused us not to go to postseason play. And, and our administration, if they would have just let the process be, be run, none of that would have, would have happened. Now there's other programs that are under investigation and now they let due process and let it, let it, let it play its course. Um, and and then things happen. So I was that that's where my disappointment was with uh, the university. The university kind of, you know, they, they they fired before asking questions. And as you bring up, you're talking about minor infractions. That kind of stuff goes on everywhere. And the really sad part is just how it tarnished Valvano's reputation, NC State's reputation at that time. All of a sudden, you're grouped in with these schools that you know, are just, uh, you know, no, you know, lack of institutional control. You always hear about the programs that, that, yep. that coaches, you know, players are running amok and, and, and such. And, and certainly anyone who's done any research on it knows that wasn't the case at NC state at that time, which, you know, makes it even crazier to, uh, to think about how much of that do you think was a result of the fact that, that Balvana was such a high profile coach? Oh, there's no question. You know, when Coach B came here, you know, a lot of people didn't like him. A lot of NC State fans didn't like him. He was this fast talker, 
from New York and Italian uh, down in, in, in an area that was used to kind of a different, different type of person. And uh, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Now, as he continued to win and he won the championship, obviously the NC State fan base loved him. But the other fan bases um, didn't embrace him. They didn't like this guy coming into their, their neck of the woods. And um, the, the media, the, the local newspaper to me, is the the group that really kind of punished them. And there was a headline every day about this, that, and the other, when the reality, there was only two things that took place. You know, he was gone a lot. You know, we talked about him being on Johnny Carson and that speaking engagements. So he wasn't around the program probably as much as he needed to be. Um, and he was the athletic director as well. Um, you know, back back then, you know, that was – you know, a little more frequent nowadays. You're, you're, I don't think that's that's permissible. But um, you know, he wasn't hands on, and and uh, the, the local newspaper really kind of put it to him. It's just remarkable. I want to take a step back for a moment and go to your your sophomore year. We talked about NCAA tournament, your freshman year. So your sophomore year, the game everyone remembers is the Sweet Sixteen game in which you lose to Georgetown on on eventually what can only be described as this terrible call where you're driving the lane, get an and one challenging the Georgetown bigs who, you know, had Alonzo morning in that game. And it was just a phenomenal game. But the thing is, so you're called for, for travel it should have been an and one cost you guys the game. But what's really crazy is people forget you guys had um, mounted a, a comeback in that game. Um, yeah. Right. And, and that they were up pretty big and you guys showed so much determination throughout throughout that basketball game i know it's the travel that you get asked about a lot but what else do you remember about that that game in particular well i remember you know we were down 15 17 in the second half and uh uh ronnie monroe caught fire and um you know we just kept fighting back we just kept battling and avi lester our center and alonzo gotten a little bit of an altercation that kind of fueled our fire and um, you know, we, we got it down to, to two and uh, I ended up driving in and, and clearly, um, you know, it wasn't a travel and, and the official made the call um, that potentially, you know, cost us the game. But I tell you, the, the, the one thing that that kind of probably sticks out in my mind more than anything is that uh, the official that made that call, a guy by the name of Rick Hartzell, ended up writing Coach Valvano a, a letter say, saying, I blew it. I missed that call. So our first preseason game, we're playing Marathon Oil the following year. And Coach B grabs me and he says, listen, the official tonight's Rick Hartzell. And he's going to go up to you and, and, and tell you something. You know, make sure you handle it right. Don't go tell him to, you know, go jump in a lake or anything. So I remember <laughs> Rick Hartzell coming up to me and, and, and saying, listen, I apologize. I blew that call. And I was able to say, well, I, you know, I appreciate you saying that. And, uh, you know, um, you know, no, no big deal. But, um, you know, sometimes it's the way people handle a situation that kind of means more than anything. Wow, that's remarkable. That is, that's remarkable. At that point, how much are you feeling that as though you're snake bitten? You, you lose to Murray State in your, your freshman year, and then and then you have this terrible call, which costs you guys, you know, your NCAA tournament run your, your sophomore year. Yeah, you know, I, I guess back then I didn't think a whole lot about that. But, um, yeah, those were two pretty good teams. And um, what was unfortunate is is we would have played Duke the very next game and, um, you know, with the right to go to the Final Four. And we had already beaten Duke. Uh, and we matched up extremely well against them. So it wasn't as though it was a team that that we feared or we didn't think we could, uh, uh, you know, defeat. But, uh, yeah, those those were two teams that, you know, again, it's so difficult making a deep run, but those were teams that, um, you know, had the, the ability and the depth to, to do that uh, sort of thing. You know, it's wild. People re- remember Valvano's uh, 83 team because of their remarkable run. They forget that. You know that team had a chance to be to be knocked out uh, early. I think it was Pepperdine in the first round took NC State to double overtime in in '83 and uh, and really should have hit some free throws. And because they missed some free throws down the stretch, enabled NC State to win, which they end up winning the national championship. I say that to say that it's really remarkable. People remember that 
but really during your time, you guys had so much success on the court and so much talent that that's almost also what they should be remembering about Balvan. And obviously they do. It's just not talked about as much, you know, so your first two years, you guys end up in the NCAA tournament and then um, your, your junior year, you don't, but your senior year, 20 and 11, it's Rodney Monroe, it's Tom Gugliotta, it's yourself, but obviously with Valvano out, it's now uh, Les Robinson taking over. So what was that transition like? I tell you, Les, Les was a, a, a unbelievable person, a very good coach. He, he made our senior year. You know, he told Rodney and I, he said, listen, you know, I'm not Coach Valvano, I'm Coach Robinson, but I want to do everything I can to, to make your senior year special. And um, the way he came in and handled that situation, you know, you, you had a group of people, a group of players that Coach V recruited. We were all bitter about the way things were handled. Um, and, and only Coach Robinson, with his personality and the way he, he handles everything first class, was able to really get that team together and uh, really want to play for him. Um, you know, we were shorthanded. You know, we, we only had six guys that played. Um, you know, we had some young, young, big guys in the front court. But uh, with Rodney, Tom, and I, um, you know, we, we were veterans. And, and we had a nice, a nice year. Um, but we just didn't have a whole lot of depth. You end up as the NCAA's all-time career assist leader. And I know you as a guy that cares about winning and championships, you place that first, but this isn't even a a scoring record. This is about, you know, setting up your, your teammates. So as you were approaching that record and you're about to be the guy with more assists than anyone who's ever played college basketball, how much was that on your mind? And and, and what did that record mean to you at the time? I think at the time, you know, I knew about it, they were tracking it, but it was, um, you know, it's really one of those records. And, and, you know, I played with so many great players. I mean, so it was, uh, it was really a team, a team award. I mean, I, Benny Del Negro, Shockerford, Brian Howard, obviously Ronnie Monroe, Tom Gugliotta. I mean, I was, I was so fortunate as a point guard, a passing point guard to have guys that could finish. And, and, uh, you know, so I kind of looked at that as a, as a team award. Um, ironically, I, um, I broke that record when we were playing the University of Tennessee uh, at uh, Tennessee, and um, Les Robinson came up to me before the game. He said, "Listen, you need two assists or three assists to break the record." And um, uh, Rick Hartzell, the guy that made the Georgetown travel call against me, uh, was mm-hmm. going to present me the ball. He was going to stop and and, and <laughs> Les kind of arranged that, so I got my second or third assist, and they stopped the game and. And Rick Hartzell is the one who presented me the ball. So it was kind of a nice touch on both Les and and uh, the officials part. Oh, I never I never knew that. That's uh that's pretty remarkable that it ties the bow on uh <laughs> on your relationship with Hartzell. That's that's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you finish your time uh at college. I mean, you know, people have said it since, but you know, the Corciani Monroe backcourt considered the best backcourt in ACC history. And I think that's, that's more than fair. I think it's, it's certainly you guys were both sensational and played so well off of each other. Um, I'm curious though, as a point guard, you, you mentioned playing with all these great players, including Monroe. What was your mindset like on each trip down the floor, just trying to get in your head for a moment as you're bringing the ball up, you know, and you, and you envision those times again and go right back to those moments Mm -hmm. You know, is is your first instinct? I guess I'm kind of leading you here, but is your first instinct to try to break your man down, or are you always looking for Monroe first? I mean, what, as you think back to that time, what was your mindset as a point guard? Um, you know, I was always attacking. I was always wanting to push the ball, try to get by my defender. Um, but certainly, the mindset was to to find Rodney, and and you end up developing such a unique. Um, feeling I knew exactly what Rodney was going to do where he was going to be um it's one of those things that's really hard to describe it's just I knew exactly what Rodney was thinking and he knew exactly what I was thinking it was a it was really a beautiful thing but for a point guard you know over you know over time it just evolves into that and um 
you know, but he certainly was my, my first option when I was bringing the ball back. <laughs> For sure. Brian Monroe only played 38 games in the NBA. Why, why don't you think he had more success at the next level? You know, some people have said that, that as much as, as we've helped one another in, in college, we, we really hurt one another because he didn't really have the ball in his hands. He was more or less a, a guard that, that was being set up and he didn't have to create, um, you know, quite as much. Um, you know, I, I think that if Rodney would have played point guard for four years, he would have developed a, a little different skill set. Um, you know, but Rodney was one of these players that, uh, um, you know, was a little slender, um, you know, not real big to be playing off guard. Um, he almost got caught, you know, as, as a kind of a tweener. Um, but he had a remarkable career going overseas and, and uh, playing in Italy for a number of years. Just a talented, talented guy. So that, that's why I asked the, the question. As, as for your own NBA future, uh, you're drafted in, in the second round in 1991. Where were you on draft night? I was in New Jersey um, with, with my family, all my um, grandmother and grandfather and my aunts and uncles. We had a big kind of thing uh, up there. And, um, you know, that's one of the one of the craziest nights of uh, of your life because you're, you know, you're hearing different things and Golden State had two picks in the first round. And, you know, I thought that I was going to go w- with one of their, one of their two picks and that didn't happen. And you're, um, you know, you're waiting and waiting and, and then you end up getting picked and it's, you know, for me, it was almost bittersweet because I was happy to be picked 36. But at the same time, I went to the Orlando Magic that had, uh, three guards that all had guaranteed contracts. And that's Scott Skiles, Sam Benson, and Moreland Wiley. So I was, you know, one of those guys where I would have been much better off at the time uh, being a free agent. But uh, uh, things end up, you know, ended up working out. Yeah, it's funny. So many uh, NBA players talk about that with the draft. People think that just because you end up getting drafted in the second round that, that you're thrilled about it. But because things can be situation-based, as you just pointed out, you know, free agent gets to choose where they, where they want to go and the situation that's right for them. So um, that's, uh, that's interesting. The difference between the last pick in the first round and the first pick in the second round is, is huge. It's, it's, uh, you know, be, being a second round draft pick in the NBA is, you know, is almost uh, worse than being a free agent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and now, I mean, first round picks have guaranteed contracts. Second round picks don't. So, even right. more so to to your point, you go to the Orlando Magic. Obviously, Scott Skiles is there. Like you talk about, Sam Vincent, a very good guard. People don't don't talk about uh, another really good lead guard. I guess how much did you see that it was the beginnings of something that was actually going to be a a, a very good Magic team in in the years to come. You know, the, the, that year, um, you know, going down to, to camp, it, it was it was eye opening. You know, that that level going from college to the NBA for me was was that was a big jump. And, um, you know, again, with all those guaranteed contracts, you know, I knew that, um, you know, I just needed to play well. And I was showcasing in preseason for other teams. Um, and, and I. um I, I remember the day the day I got cut, uh, Coach Matty Gukas, he called me into his office. And I'd never been cut from anything in my life. This was the first time that I really had failure in basketball. And he called me in the office and he said, Listen, Chris, you know, we you know, we, we, we have a log jam and there's just not you know, just no no, no space for you. And um and I remember saying this is probably one of the greatest things I've done in my career is I said, Coach Gukas, you know, I want to appreciate, you know, tell you thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, what do you think I need to do to get better so that I can get back and play at this level? And he stopped and said, no, no one I have ever cut has ever asked me that question. And he went on to spend about a half an hour with me. And he said, listen, you need to work on your pull up. You need to do this. You know, I really think you, you, you know, in this league, you're not going to play extended minutes, but you need to pressure full court. You need to get the ball up faster, um, you know, with the, with the shot clock. Um, 
you know, he kind of told me things that I needed to do to get better. So then I go from being cut, I go to um, the Raleigh Bullfrogs, and it's a kind of CBA. It's called the GBA. It's a minor league kind of uh, deal. And I'm there for about a month. And uh, I end up getting a phone call because Scott Skiles and Sam Vincent get injured on the same day. And Matt Gutis hmm. knew I knew the system, probably had a lot of respect for the way I handled that uh, being cut. And I ended up um, being called up and, and actually starting uh, my first game in the NBA against the Denver Nuggets. Take me through that night. What was What's that light, night like leading up to, uh, to, to tip-off? Well, what, I got a call from my agent. He said, listen, you need to be out at McNichols Arena in Denver. Um, so I had a flight. I remember getting out there. And I, I jumped in a cab and it, you know, the game was, you know, seven o'clock game and it was about, you know, five o'clock. And I, you know, started talking to the cab driver and I told him, I said, listen, I'm, I'm playing, playing my first NBA game today. And he <laughs> kind of looked at me like I was crazy. And, uh, I remember getting dropped off, um, you know, at the arena, um, and, and trying to get in McNichols Arena. I go up there and the gates aren't even open yet. And I'm trying to tell us, you know, a guy that's uh, a security guard. I said, listen, I'm, I just got called up by the Orlando magic. And, you know, again, this guy thinks I'm nuts, this short, fat little, little guy out front trying to get in. And, uh, I finally get in and, and get down to the locker room. And, um, you know, I knew all the guys cause I, you know, was at training camp and, um, it was just so real to, to, to not only be out there warming up, but to actually start in, in the league that, you know, is, is the highest level. And, um, you know, I ended up, you know, you know, having, having a good game and that 10, 11 points and five or six assists. I remember I had five or six rebounds as well. And I kind of have often joked, I said that, uh, you know, in, in the three years that I played in the NBA, I almost had a triple double my first game and it was the only start of my career. <laughs> oh, incredible. Incredible. How about, how about the next year, Chris, here comes Shaq. What are your memories from that, that whole experience? I tell you that the, the, the mem- when, when Shaq came the second year, it was, you know, it was crazy because my first year with the Orlando magic, no one really even knew who the Orlando Magic was. My my mother-in-law thought that they were uh, like a, uh, another CBA team or a minor league team. They <laughs> a big name. But when Shaq came, it, it, it was nuts. I mean, we would pull up to hotels or, or go out, and it was just a mob of people. And, you know, again, my first year, you know, you'd pull up to a hotel on the road, and nobody was in the lobby, and, you know, but boy, when Shaq came, it, it, it changed the, the whole dynamic of, of Orlando Magic basketball. Can you put into words just how talented Shaquille O'Neal was? I mean, he, he's got to go down as one of the, the, you know, the best bigs ever to play in the NBA. I mean, obviously you got Will, Kareem, a number of other great ones, and Bill Russell. But, you know, what's, what's amazing to me is uh, I recently saw a team picture um, of Shaq's rookie year and, and to see him that, that he was, he was slender. You know, you, you look at him now and you look at him as he progressed his career and then maybe became so big and strong and bulky. But when he was a rookie, I mean, he could move. He was, you know, he was thin. He was like a big kid. He was always joking around and, um, um, you know, he's like a, just, just a big kid all the time. <laughs> So fascinating. Everyone's got a Shaq story. Every every interview I do, it always comes back to Shaq. Someone's got a Shaq story. Yeah, he was he was something. So so Chris, you end up playing for the, the Bullets and the Celtics and then spend time overseas. I just have one question about your time overseas, and th- and that is while you were there, you're there during you know the mid mid to late nineties, during that stretch. How much were you seeing the development of the international game and, and the impact it would soon have on on the NBA? Well, you know, it, it's, that's a great question. But back then, you didn't see many players. I think Drazen uh, Petrovic, you know, was over here. But um, when I went over to Italy, the first team I played on, I played with Tony Kukoc. And uh, Tony <laughs> and I were teammates. And, and he was really 
kind of the, the, the first group of guys that, uh, you know, started going there. I played against Dino Raja over there. I played against Mono, believe it or not, Mono Ginobili was an 18-year-old playing for Kinder Bologna. Um, there were so many great, talented players over there. Um, but I never thought that, that they would migrate all the way to the NBA and, and really put an imprint on. I mean, you can look at any NBA roster now. There's five, six, I mean, half the rosters, uh, guys that are that are uh, foreigners, which is just great for the NBA. But I could see that the talent level that was over in Europe, um, you know, soon soon they would all kind of follow Kukoc and Drazen Petrovic over, over to the NBA. That's really fascinating. Where were you during the the famous uh, Jimmy V speech at at the ESPYS? I was in Italy, and uh, I, I remember talking to my father, and um, you know he said, "Boy, man, Coach V just he was on fire." He said that was one of the greatest speeches I'd ever heard, and uh, yeah, so I was in Italy at the time, but I, I certainly have watched that. Many, many a times, and, and every time my emotions uh, are the same. Brings you all back to your uh, to your time with him. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean that that speech is it really emulates exactly who he is. I mean the passion he has, and uh, you know my greatest line uh, of that speech is when the guy's telling him he's got like. You know, he's got a couple more minutes to, to, to speak. And he says, you're telling me I, I got tumors all throughout my body. And you're telling me I got a couple minutes? He's like, yeah, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yes. A, a special a special guy. You know, it's interesting playing for Valvano and um, being such a student of the game, playing for your father. I'm fascinated as to why you you aren't a coach right now. That's interesting. A lot of people ask that question. Um, tell you what happened was I ended up, um, you know, playing the three years in the NBA and then I went overseas and played eight. And, uh, throughout that time, I ended up starting a family. So my kids were with me, uh, traveling to Italy and Spain. And, um, you know, I had three kids at the time. And, um, you know, when I got back, um, in the summers, I was always dabbling in real estate. And, um, that's what I would do. I'd buy a house and fix it up. And, and I just, for, for 11 years, I was kind of in a different city, a different country every year. And, uh, most of those deals were one year contracts. And I really wanted to get my kids, um, kind of set, uh, without having to travel and, and, uh, you know, be able to make friends and make roots. And, um, you know, I got into real estate, you know, at the time. And um, I did have some opportunities over the years to to get into coaching, but um, you know I loved business and I wanted to see my kids grow up and, and and be able to spend a lot of time with them. Everyone who talks about you talks about you being a family man. Everyone who talks about the family you came from talks about what a great family it was. So congratulations on on that. First of all, I think we always talk about the the basketball accolades and. Uh, and otherwise, but I think people always forget that, you know, it takes a lot and people should be commended for, for being great family men. So congratulations on, on that. Oh, you're, you're, oh, you're, you're welcome. And your, your son, Chris, Chris Jr. is currently playing for, for NC State. So what has that experience been like for you? Ah, it's been special. I'll tell you, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Mark Gottfried, um, you know, saw him play at camp and said, listen, if he doesn't have anything, um, you know, at a level that, that, that he would like to play, so I'd love to have him as a walk-on. And, um, you know, when that happened, just the thought of him being able to put on a uniform, um, you know, just kind of made, made me just light up. And, um, you know, I, I can recall the first game that he, um, you know, ran out and the band started playing and the crowd was there. You know, I, I teared up just, having him in an NC state uniform, he grew up as a kid going to all the games. And, uh, I've always been very close to the program. Uh, so to have him wear an NC state uniform happened, happens to be, uh, my number 13, um, was, was unbelievable. And in the first game that he hit a basket, uh, against Virginia tech, you know, that was again, a, a very memorable uh, moment for me. Awesome. Awesome. What what advice would you give other 
parents who have, who have been big name college pro athletes about about their children and and um, trying to raise them with the expectations that are that are out there. You know, I I would say just be there in a supportive role. Don't push them um, if it's not something that they want to do. Um, you know, just love them. Be a parent. Um, you know, I've got a, a younger son that. Um, didn't take to basketball quite as much as my my uh, other two boys, but you know, not not all kids are going to be the same. Um, but just love them, support them, um, you know, just be there for them for whatever they want to do, whether it's basketball or piano or uh, whatever it might be. And lastly, Chris, how much do you still stay involved with the game of basketball? You mentioned the fact that you know you took your your trip to see Greg Marshall, but just in terms of working out players or what have you, how much are you still involved in, in the game? Um, you know, I'm, I'm around the NC State program. I go to all the home games. I probably go to a practice once a week. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with the NCAA rules, I'm not allowed being uh, involved any further. Um, but I just, uh, NC State's been good to me over the years, and, and I love uh, the university. I love the athletic department. and um, you know, just being around that and, and going to practice and watching the guys compete, you know, that that's where I get my fill. Um, you know, I work my kids out and, um, you know, I'm the assistant coach for an AAU team and that kind of gives me a little bit of uh, on the court teaching of kids. But, um, you know, I stay busy with business and, and when I do have some free time, I like to kind of get a little bit of basketball. In. <laughs> do uh, you still get out there and, and play with the kids? Uh, yeah, but it's it's a little I'm a little slower, and, and my my <laughs> expectations of, of winning are, are not like they used to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's hard to temper that though. So, yeah, yeah, I played in a uh, parent faculty game, and uh, those games are are quite quite unique because you end up waking up the next morning and you're like, why, why did I do that again? Cause every, <laughs> every muscle and every bone is just aching. Oh, that's, that's phenomenal. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. I can't say enough. Uh, I, this has been awesome. Thank you for, uh, for your, your insight and, uh, and really opening up about, about your entire, uh, career and all these unbelievable experiences. No, Adam, I, Thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, and if I could ever help you out, uh, feel free to give me a buzz. You can find Chris Corciani on Twitter at Chris underscore Corciani. I, Adam Stanko, am on Twitter at NaismithLives, and this podcast is on Twitter at GreatPointPod. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. Thanks to Coach Nick for allowing us to be part of B-Ball Breakdown. Thanks to Yao G's for our intro music. Download Yao's music on iTunes. And most importantly, thank you for listening. That'll do it for this episode of the Great Point Podcast. We'll catch you next time.